Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about women in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. And joining me to do that, we have Brandon Hurlbert, who is a PhD candidate in Old Testament at Durham University. How's it going, Brandon? Hey, John. Good to be here. And we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Janine Brown, who is professor of New Testament at Bethel Seminary, one of my esteemed colleagues at Bethel. She is also a member of the NIV Translation Committee, author of Scripture as Communication with Baker, and most recently, The Gospels as Stories with Baker, which came out earlier this summer. As well as being an author of a few commentaries on Matthew, one in the Teach the Text series with Baker and one in the Two Horizons series with Erdman's, which she co-wrote with Kyle Roberts. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Brown. It's great to be here. You know you can call me Janine. <laughs> not on the pod, not on the pod. Uh, so, well, and not after this week's Dr. Jill Biden. Oh, that's a great point, actually. Yeah, so, that, that's yeah. a great that is so I'll, I'll take that. That's fine. <laughs> well, how about we start off with a broad question? Why should anybody pay attention to genealogies at all. Genealogies are probably the sections of our Bibles that we are most likely to just skip over. Why are they worth paying attention to? Yeah, we betray a modern sensibility when we, and a Western sensibility, I suppose, when we ignore genealogies. And I'm prone to do that myself, except I love Matthew, so I have to love Matthew's genealogy. And that's where he starts, uh, the story of Jesus. And the purpose of genealogies there are multiple purposes, but kind of grounding the identity of someone, um, that lineage identity is so crucial. Um, and in my Two Horizons commentary with Kyle, um, one of the things we talk about is how genealogies aren't ignored around the globe. They're, in fact, very important in various parts of Christianity. And African attention to the genealogy of Jesus is really interesting to study and look at. So we're just thinking a small slice if we think. Uh, these aren't important to people. That's just betraying our own sensibilities. And I think once you get into Matthew's genealogy, he, he adds so many interesting pieces. It's not what sort of is repeated that's as interesting. Some of that is as interesting as well, but uh, what's added. So um, the, and his brothers, the, the women in the genealogy, uh, the way he shapes it uh, communicates theologically, literally and theologically, which is exciting, I think. Now, what is, why is it so notable that uh, any women at all are mentioned uh, in this genealogy? Well, ancient genealogies are patrilineal. We expect to hear about the men. We don't expect to hear about the women. Um, we could say the same for the genealogy in Chronicles. We want to go on your turf, um, Brandon, and um, note that there are women in that genealogy as well that, that kind of stick out for their uh, because they're more unusual in genealogies. So these women uh, stick out both in terms of the extra words to communicate whose mother was, or um, in Greek, a little different phrase, but, um, and they stick out because they catch our attention in this long line of, of male ancestors. To Joseph, by the way, not to Jesus yet. We'll only get those, that connection later in the chapter. Now, Matthew ends with a allusion to uh, Second Chronicles there. It's kind of like the final text of the Tanakh. Um, I had never really quite considered that maybe Matthew opens with allusions to Chronicles as well. Is that, is that something that, that you think is going on? That's a really interesting point just in terms of the reminiscence of where the book starts. I mean, so Chronicles is just amazing 
Um, and we might say in our Western context, boring kind of list of a whole bunch of people, but um, very intentionally there, right? To ground David. So I, I would say that's something worth pondering. Yeah. So how about who, who are the women specifically that Matthew does mention in his genealogy? Well, he mentions Tamar in verse three. And in verse five, we have um, Rahab and Ruth. And then in verse six, the wife of Uriah. Um, the feminine article of Uriah. So um, clearly in terms of the context of genealogy, Bathsheba, but not named, which has a little bit of a clue as to why these four women, I, I think. Normally people don't uh, choose to skip uh, preaching on uh, this passage, um, but around Christmas time, you kind of are forced to uh, uh, suffer through the, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so Mm-hmm. Begat so and so. I've heard of not everyone does this, but I've heard some sermons uh, in the past that talk about these women. They name them, and it's they they point out that this is really uh, interesting. But what they then tend to do is they use the women to make a point. Or at least some of the women, uh, Tamar and Bathsheba uh, in particular, they use these women to make the point that that God works through sinners and that these women were actually the mistakes of men mm. uh, and that God, isn't it amazing that God can bring uh, his son through these broken, sinful people. And while that is a, 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 as a theological point is very true, I wonder if there might be a better way to read uh, Matthew's genealogy or is, you know, is Matthew making this point or is he trying to do something different by his inclusion of women here? I would say he's doing something different, but it's not surprising this uh, this theme or motif on, of sinners or um, unusual births or even scandalous conceptions birth, um, because there's a long history of that. The early church father Jerome talked about the whole um, that in the genealogy of Jesus, none of the holy women are included. So the matriarchs, for example. Uh, only those who the scriptures blame, he writes, in order that he who came in behalf of sinners himself, born of sinners, might destroy the sins of all. So here are the sinners in the genealogy. And there are other examples we could give um, a lovely, or maybe not, analogy of David and, and the wife Uriah of Bathsheba um, in an anonymous, early anonymous sermon where David um, gets to be a type of Christ looking down from his balcony on the um, church who is just in disarray and sin and, and you know, redeems her, restores her. David looking down on Bathsheba, this, this whole analogy where Bathsheba doesn't come off as well as David at all, which you're an Old Testament scholar, Brendan. I mean, I don't think that's the way the Second Samuel text exactly reads as I've read it. So That's a big yikes, uh, yikes. From, in my mind. <laughs> yes, yes. So that has been one way the women have been conceived. And part of the issue is that if you want to look at the four women at the front and then note, of course, Mary comes at the very end, actually kind of outside of the genealogy in one sense, because there's a break in verse 16. If you want to connect them, then you start to think irregular births, scandalous, those kinds of things. So there's an exegetical reason for that. But much more probable in my mind is that Matthew is highlighting four Gentiles right at the beginning of his story of Jesus. Gentile inclusion is a really crucial theme in Matthew, though it's a very Jewish gospel, and the mission of Jesus in the Galilean ministry is to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, chapter 10, chapter 15. We're going to hear kind of all the way across this smattering of Gentiles to just remind us that the 
the mission of Israel was always to reach the nations. So the nations are a part of God's inclusive plan from the beginning. Israel knew this, um, and Matthew's reader needs to know it. So I, I read these four as Gentiles, Tamar, a Canaanite. I mean, as best we can tell, Rahab, a Canaanite from Jericho. I mean, yeah, Rahab. Um, Ruth, a Moabite, emphasized across that story as Ruth the Moabite. Even when she's back in the land, she's Ruth the Moabite. So we have this strong sense of association with another people, even though she's incorporated into Israel. And then um, the wife of Uriah. I think that's why the framing, uh, not calling her Bathsheba. Um, some argue that she's clearly from the Old Testament uh, material um, an Israelite, though that's not the way everyone goes. There's other ways to read. I mean, there, there can be more than one of those fellows. She is likely highlighted as um, a wife of the wife of Uriah because Uriah, about a third of the time in the Old Testament, is called Uriah the Hittite, clearly non-Israelite. So I think more likely Gentile um, inclusion is being emphasized by, by the use of these four women. And Mary functions differently. Bacham in his work on, on the named women in the Gospels talks about how this is a different situation because it's sort of a break in the genealogy. It moves toward the, what I call the conundrum of the genealogy. This is supposed to be Joseph's, and now we found out it's not Joseph's at all. Mary is the one who begets Jesus, not Joseph. So then verses 18 through 25, the end of chapter one has to indicate uh, through adoption that Jesus becomes a part of this, which is an interesting and maybe interesting to ponder for theological purposes as well. So, so what would be what what would have been more surprising to an early audience? Uh, the fact that uh, women are in this genealogy, or the fact that they're Gentiles? Yeah, I mean, it's unusual that there are women. I mean, they stick out, but not that there are women at all. Um, because again, Chronicles, we have women included. We have one who's even built the town, or whatever three towns. I can't remember how that goes, but. Um, there are women there, so it's not that you would never expect women, but certainly in Jesus's genealogy, to hear these Gentiles as prominent. Just like at the end of Ruth, you hear that David comes from this Moabite. There also be no Moabites, right? Deuteronomy 23, you just, yeah, no. It's a, it's a powerful emphasis on Gentile inclusion and Gentiles as Gentiles. I mean, certainly these women were incorporated into Israel. Um, um, but there is this sense of they have that gentle, gentile identity still. Yeah, I, I think pushing further uh, on these questions about why these women are included in the genealogy, you know, some have said that, you know, or many have noted that there seems to be a strange or if not illicit sexual behavior uh, in each of these stories. You know, Tamar sleeps with her father-in-law, but then she's commended as more righteous than him. You have Rahab, the prostitute. You have Ruth, the Moabite, uh, and then you have Bathsheba, who is raped by David. Uh, but you know, there's there's illicit sexual behavior in each of these, and I wondered if these four examples might actually be a foil for kind of the more uh, I don't want to say pure, but the, the pure example of Mary, where there is not uh, there's a, the, a whiff of a scandal, but it turns out the reader understands that there that there is no illicit sexual behavior. And some read the five actually in line with each other. These are all irregular births, whiffs of scandal everywhere. You know, so some see them not as a foil, but five in a row. And I, I you know, I think there's there's textual reasons for saying, yeah, there's there's evidence we could read it that way. 
I find it interesting, though, this tendency, and these are all about conceptions, right? Not just those four, the whole row. I mean, conception is highlighted all the way through. If you're going to be thinking sex anywhere in Matthew, you're going to be thinking about it in a genealogy. And yet it's the women who get, there's this kind of sexualization that it feels like it happens pretty easily within male-dominated scholarship, way back and then to the present maybe as well. I want to be careful there. Um, but it's just interesting. Do you, as soon as you hear about Abraham and go, yeah, he was someone who couldn't conceive. He was impotent. Or maybe he was, you know, I mean, do you start to think all about those details? Only with the women do we get into all those details. You could look at a number of men along the way and say, are we thinking about the sexual act here? No, we think about the whole person as they're cited. This is, so, uh, the, you know, the, the, those that went into exile, you know, the, the Jeconiah and his brothers. Do we think, okay, it's about their, the conception of their offspring. Is it's about that act of that. We don't think about that in a genealogy. And suddenly, with, or not suddenly, but it seems with the four women, we tend to sexualize them much more quickly. Now, maybe that's because they're Old Testament stories, but I'm guessing if we looked at that whole list, we could find a few maybe more interesting stories somewhere. Interesting, but I think of Abraham right away and his inability with Sarah to be pregnant. Do we think and fixate on that reality? We say, Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, as I think we're supposed to. We think of the whole person, even though they're in a genealogy which highlights conception kinds of things. I just think it's interesting. I wonder about that whole, we do it with the four women or the five women. We go right to that. Who does that? I don't as a woman. I tend not to. I tend to think of the Ruth, I mean, what an amazing story of a, of a woman who turns, you know, changes allegiance drastically in the very first chapter ever, before she ever meets the Boaz guy, you know, so don't we get to hear the whole person for all of them, potentially, all of the faithfulness that maybe adheres to each of these people? And some, like Amy Jill Levine and others, talk about how these uh, become um, models of faithfulness as well. You know, they, they, they maybe acknowledge some parts of the scandalous piece, but they're, they press into this idea that Tamar is more righteous than Judah at the end of the story. He acknowledges that, that we have this kind of strong sense of ethical as well as ethnic emphasis in these four women. So people go everywhere with them, as you can tell. Um, I just wonder about that piece, what we do, what we tend to do with women more particularly. Yeah, and I, I think that that's a really excellent point. And I, I think when you do actually press into the Old Testament stories, you you end up finding, oh, actually, the, the illicit sexual behavior is on the on behalf of the men. It's the it's the men's fault. It's uh it's not the women's fault. They're they're not blamed for the, their actions and they're actually commended as righteous and they're incorporated into the people of God. So I think that's an excellent point that we shouldn't just focus on what we think the Old Testament says about them, but we should actually go back to the Old Testament and, and, and push a bit more deeply. Because in some cases, not, not all the time, but in some cases, it ends up uh, exonerating uh, the, the women uh, and, and com- commending the women and condemning the men. And so let me just read this um, bit of a homily about David and Bathsheba and the analogy, because it just this, this tendency kind of ah, pops up here. Even in his worst sin lay the mystery of Christ in the church, says David. David, taking delight on his high roof, saw the very beautiful Bathsheba bathing, desired her, and beckoned her, though she was married to a Hittite man. There is a prefiguring, even here, though it may seem unlikely. 
Christ, while in his high heaven and still joyful in his divinity, saw in advance the very attractive church of his people, displeasing him with sordid behavior and weakened good works. When it was still the devil's bride, he laid eyes on her, loved her, and drew her to himself. That is awful. (laughs) John, we we can't curse on here, right? (laughs) (laughs) The tendencies, um, I wonder, still kind of part of our... Read about, you know, how sermons deal with the Samaritan woman and, you know, oh my goodness. Can you uh, name and shame the... uh... That homily is it? If, it's, if, it's if they're an, dead, it truly is anonymous. Incomplete work of Matthew homily one. Oh, it's very large from what I understand, but it still is anonymity a, wins it's, today. It's, yes, yeah, I can't name that particular one. Well, I, I like that you're stressing the um, gentile and and ethical dynamics of of this. Um, I wonder if you know you kind of mentioned a little bit about some of the gentile implications of what matthew is doing more broadly in his gospel i wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about one of the very first episodes that follows from the genealogy with the magi who appear um i wonder if you could uh, tell us a little bit more about that yeah uh, so you know we have these four with gentile women we have the magi we then have a number of statements in matthew where the gentiles are mentioned like 4 12 through 16 out of isaiah and then we have Centurion and the Canaanite woman and Pilate's wife. We have all sorts of folks. Um, the Magi um, within the story of Jesus, uh, the infancy story, are just an interesting group. Number one, you know, how do we render them? Uh, traditionally wise men, but um, some translations have been going back to Magi to just to, to signal we don't n- know precisely who they are. Are they um, from the royal court uh, from the east? You know, they, they seem to be clearly, they seem to be Gentiles, although there's a minority report that they might be Jews who are in, you know, in the dispersion that kind of still are hanging around the court. Mark Allen Powell, in his work um, on the reader reception kind of of the Magi, suggests that these are actually servants within the court. They're not, they're not royal officials, but they're, uh, they're surprisingly not kings that come to give uh, that worship to to worship or pay pay homage, um, as in the psalm, but instead they're servants who come. Where are the kings? Kind of thing. So they're not we three kings. They are servants who serve um, royal officials. So they are surprising Gentile characters of lower status. Uh, so nobody really knows who they are. We don't, of course, know they are three because they're never three are never mentioned. Powell's work kind of deconstructs a little bit of the history of interpretation. Um, and suggest you know that they are not they are not to be conceived of as wise men per se, but they are Gentiles who come who have been watching you know the astronomers, the astrologers, the watching the stars and come and find you know do the right thing in comparison to the king King Herod. They become a foil for King Herod in the story. So who you know the, they come to serve the true king. Would it be fair to translate them or interpret them as uh, wizards? Is that okay? I think magicians. Magi- magicians. Yeah, magicians. Yeah, I mean, wizards. I think that's that's why Powell goes uh, more so. I don't know if he argues for a particular translation. Translation. One of the issues in translation, being a part of a translation team, very aware of very traditional passages and how quickly you kind of move to a, a different rendering without sort of the full the sense of yeah, we're really convinced this is a way to go. And particularly in those kind of passages that, you know, the wizards would probably throw people way out in the stratosphere. I'm just, 
I'm just conv- I'm just convinced that uh, Lord of the Rings uh, is a Christmas movie because it has elves, and I think <laughs> I think its connection with the wizards and the magic. I think that would just really it could work. Really work. I think it, it could work. work. Yeah, we'll circle back to that one. <laughs> yeah, I when I uh, when I lecture on um, Harry Potter at at churches, I I, I mention this issue of the yeah. magi could be yeah. magicians, and I actually think that J.K. Rowling draws upon that mm. possibility in in an allusion to Epiphany in the third book, which uh, we don't need to get into. But I do think that she is uh, aware of this, uh, which I think is kind of fun. So um, how do people respond when you say that? Do they say, great, let's change the language here? Or do they <sighs> try to stone you? <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I use it as part of just a general way of dispelling the idea that Rolling is, I don't know, some kind of pagan. Yeah. But they aren't kings. I mean, I think that is yeah. clear. And there's not three of them. Three gifts. Right. That's where the three three kings come from. There are three gifts that are mentioned. Are you are you thus uh, canceling We Three Kings? Can't it is my favorite Christmas carol. A lot of, a lot of them like them a lot better, but it's not bad. You know, so the the song "Little Drummer Boy" definitely seems mm-hmm. to be rooted in the Magi story, right? Mm-hmm. And and so it's sort of like I think it also assumes that the magi are kings because it's meant to be a kind of socioeconomic contrast right where the little drummer boy doesn't have anything all he can do is play on his drum right in contrast to presumably these kings who have all kinds of luxury and whatever this is an interesting thought then to think that actually the magi might be servants to then think that they would be on a maybe comparable socioeconomic status as the little drummer boy obviously the little drummer boy is fictitious but like it's rooted in that story. Yeah. I wonder, I don't yeah. know if you've ever thought about that. I haven't, but I, I do think it fits with, again, Powell's conception. What I'm kind of drawn to his work in that topic because I, I think he does a good job of looking at some of the historical backdrop and then also thinking about the illusions from the psalm that get played on. Mm. Um, so these three servants of kings versus three kings come. So kind of where are the kings? Where They should be here according to the psalm. They, they're probably bringing kings on be, or bringing gifts on behalf of, or who knows how much they brought. Or there's not, you know, I, I always say in Matthew too that Matthew answers none of the questions we're interested in. All sorts of things that we would like to know a lot more about, and students write long papers on. I'm like, we have not, virtually nothing on anything we're interested in Matthew two because we're interested in the Christmas story, and Matthew two isn't telling a Christmas story exactly. So if the Magi aren't kings, that's, a, that's an interesting thing to also contrast back with the genealogy, because the genealogy does seem to really emphasize the regality of Jesus's lineage. I wonder if uh, maybe we could say a little bit more about, in addition to you know, the stress on the, the Gentiles in Jesus's lineage, uh, what else is, is Matthew doing distinctly theologically with the genealogy of, of Jesus. Yeah, in both chapters one and two, Jesus as king is crucial. You know, it's a very important theme. Um, the only person in the genealogy who's called a king is David. And then the, the whole Davidic um, emphasis in Matthew on Jesus as son of David, i.e. king, i.e. Messiah, um, those connections are made. So it's a kingly genealogy, and Jesus has to be adopted into Joseph's line to kind of adhere to that genealogy or be be the conclusion to it. And the shape of the genealogy in these three sections uh, moves from Abraham to David, king, he's named king, and then to exile, loss of king, loss of land, 
And then what I called back in the days of the early 2000s, the return of the king. You know, that's what we hear in chapter 16. That's for you, Brendan. Um, and so we have this sense of, of kingship, Messiah language. And then in chapter two, uh, it's Jesus and um, Herod that are contrasted. Herod, king of the Jews. And yet here is the king of the Jews, really, and called the king of the Jews. And what's so fascinating for me in, in chapter two is that Jesus is not a subject of any active verb in any part of the chapter, completely acted upon, protected by God through Joseph and worshiped by Magi, but just doesn't do a thing. So you mentioned that there's kind of these three sections of the genealogy, and, and there's this kind of summary verse at the end of the genealogy where Matthew kind of stresses the 14 generations yeah. for each of those three sections. And this stress on 14 seems to be really important for Matthew. What, what's going on there with the significance of the number of 14? Well, if you want to read all the options, you go to Davies and Allison's commentary in their little kind of footnotish part of, you know, like the subtext smaller than the actual text of their small text commentary. And they've got like, I don't know, 10 to 12 different options. But the main ones um, are about the number of generations in sevens and going into the final seventh. Now, the problem with that is that it isn't framed as seven, 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 you know, six sevens, and now we're in the final seven, which would be a number of completion instead is 14. So I think the most likely is the play on the Gamatria on David's name, David, four, six, four. Hebrew letters can function as numbers. I mean, when you want to count higher than, at least they did that by the time of the first century. Gematria is a pretty common way of signaling something's importance. So Dalit, Vav, Dalit, 464 equal 14. So that's what I think is going on. Now, some say, well, you know, Matthew's readers probably don't know Hebrew. Is he really doing this kind of thing in Hebrew? But Gematria was known beyond people who knew the language. And then he has, at the end of chapter two, this very interesting non-quotation from the Old Testament that he would be called a Nazarene, which is probably a play on the Hebrew for um, root from the stump of Jesse. You know, that, at least that's the way numbers of commentaries go, France and Davis and Allison. And that would require, again, either knowledge of Hebrew or a knowledge of this term that's floating around as a, David, or as a messianic kind of term. Yeah, I think the Davidic emphasis is really strong in chapters one and two and will be throughout the gospel where son of David occurs more frequently than the other gospels per capita. So uh, continuing this, uh, this like theme of, you know, Gentile inclusion, I wonder if you might say a bit more about why Matthew includes at the very end, after the uh, murder of the innocents, um, you have them fleeing to Egypt. Uh, and obviously in the Old Testament, Egypt has a uh, a very long history of being uh, a place of refuge and also the enemies and you shouldn't go back. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot of history <laughs> there uh, in the Old Testament. And, I, and, I, and the passage ends with this very interesting, you know, verse 15, um, you know, spoken by the prophet, you know, out of Egypt, I've called my son, which if I remember correctly is from Hosea. Yes. Hosea 11. 11 yeah. And it makes... And Hosea 11.1 1 has virtually nothing to do with, at least on, on a plain reading, uh, has nothing to do with the Messiah or really anything uh, that Matthew's getting at. So I wonder if you could maybe talk a bit more about that. What, what's going on there? Help people, help me at least, yeah. understand what's going on there. Right. Um, oh, I love Hosea 11. Isn't that a gorgeous passage? 
It's about God's calling of son Israel out of Egypt. And then um, the promise that they will not re- stay in exile because God's already done this other wonderful thing. They will also return from exile, which I think then gives us a clue into Matthew. Matthew uses uh, quite a number, you know, four different citations in chapter uh, two from the Old Testament. Each of them has exilic flavor to them more broadly, if you look at the broader context. Uh, And I think he's really pulling this theme of Jesus as the one who brings return from exile out of the text, um, out of these texts and their context. Um, But that particular one has been um, often cited for its, you know, this is really a proof text, if you ever see a proof text for Jesus. But one of the themes I see throughout Matthew is Jesus as the representative Israelite. The one who comes to, in microcosm, live out the vocation of all of Israel. And if we see it that way, then out of Egypt, it called my son is exactly, now Israel is again coming out of Egypt. It's analogous. It's analogous versus what what we often think of strictly prophetic. I think prophecy and prophetic words in the New Testament are broader, and and often they're doing a typology or what Richard Hayes calls more figural reading. I asked Richard in a response at an IBR meeting, is figural kind of like typology, but nobody likes typology language anymore? (laughs) You know, I mean, I think that's sometimes what we're seeing, but typology can have this sort of oddness to it if it's kind of viewed too strictly. So I think analogous is really helpful to say, like God brought Israel out of Egypt and then protected um, Israel by bringing Israel out of exile. Now God is taking the one who will be the end of exile for all of us, and T. writing it, right? Um, bringing that one out of Egypt too. Before that one can do any of the work, that Messiah can do any of the work yet. God is already showing that work to be have, have been begun. I just think it's a beautiful connection, and it's Israelite Christology at its best, which Matthew is really good at, and I think all gospel writers are good at. And we lose that if we think it's just strictly about Messiah. Hosea predicts the Messiah. No, Hosea gives us Israel in relationship with the one true God. And now we get to see how this one who lives out Israel's vocation to the fullest and and perfectly is a part of God's plan to bring in the Gentiles. But first, restore Israel. So there are a lot of uh, clear differences between uh, the birth stories uh, in Matthew and Luke. But I wondered if you might say a bit more about the specific differences between the genealogies uh, between the, of the two uh, Gospels. Yeah, um, there's all sorts of questions and suggestions for how they connect historically. I mean, whose line are we really hearing about? Um, what I find interesting from a narrative perspective is where they land. Um, genealogy in Matthew, of course, starts it off. We have the header and then we have the genealogy fleshing out that header, um, who Jesus is. Uh, in Luke, we have it right towards the end of the whole preparation phase of Jesus's ministry. It's after John the Baptist um, is uh, his ministry is described. So, what comes in Matthew three about John the Baptist and Luke three about um, John the Baptist is followed up in Luke with the genealogy. So, it kind of comes as a culmination. It is um, different in the sense that it goes in a different order. So we start with Abraham in Matthew and we get to Jesus. We start with Jesus in Luke and we go all the way back to Adam, who is called a son of God. 
So um, we have different themes that get raised. So the Davidic theme in Matthew's gospel certainly can show up in a sense in um, Luke's because David is a part of it. But beyond that, there's this emphasis on son of God, Adam, son of God. Is that an Adam Christology? How is that functioning in Luke? And so, and just where it lands, it doesn't have this quite the prominence. People have to kind of look around to find the one in Luke. Um, And yet it comes at a very interesting place as right before Jesus's temptation and the beginning of his public ministry. So, and son of God will be an important theme in the um, temptation narrative. So it kind of sets that up nicely. So just in terms of where you put a genealogy, it can, in a sense, sound different in terms of what it offers to the reader. Um, if you had to say which one I prefer, I mean, if you asked me that, I know you didn't, but I, I do love that Matthew begins. He's just so bold to begin with that genealogy. Again, that makes so much sense in his context. And maybe it's harkening back to the Chronicle. Thank you, John. Well, since we're talking about comparing Matthew and Luke here a little bit, as a kind of final thought, I wonder if we could say a little bit about, you know, especially in the run-up to Christmas, at the time of recording, we're just a few days away from from Christmas. Uh, one of the things that we often see in nativity sets is the wise men present with the shepherds. And of course, that's a conflation of Luke and Matthew. I wonder if you could say a little bit about this, you know, last mm-hmm. Last winter, I was walking around San Diego, and I walked by a church, and it had a, a full nativity set, and it was it was nice, it was gorgeous, it was illuminated, and it had a plaque like right in front that was this like prominent Bible, wide open kind of thing, and the nativity had magi and shepherds, but the text that was open was Luke two, doesn't say anything about magi. Uh, so I'm just curious what you think about sort of magi being present in nativity sets. The amalgamation or the harmonization that is required to set up a nativity, um, you know, for for the worship and the celebration of the church, I'm kind of fine with all of that. Um, but I do think it's helpful to note where we get these various traditions and how they fit within that story. I mean, really, if you want to tell the the story of Jesus' birth, you have to go to Luke because you have the announcement to Mary and. Magnificat and the shepherds, none of which show up in Matthew. You know, Matthew is just, it, it's not really a birth, there's not a birth story much other than 18 through 25 of chapter one. And that's about the, it's a naming story. It's because when you, when Joseph names Jesus, he becomes his own son. You know, there's this, it's, it's a very, there's a sense of it's an apologetic for how Jesus can actually be part of this line of Joseph. So really, you have to go to Luke, and yet you want those magi, you know, they, and they come in at, you know, it seems that since um, Herod has to kill all of the children, the boys in Bethlehem under two, that we don't have a close connection time-wise with the birth of Jesus. So, you you know, they, they could be in there a year or two later, right, or something like that. We don't know. Nativity scenes are just lovely, and they do help us. Um, hold in our minds kind of a complete complete sense of Jesus's birth with all the different pieces. Harmonization, I tell my students, do not do that when you're in class with me. If you're writing a paper on Matthew, keep the things out of math that aren't in Matthew, not in your paper. But for celebrations of the church, um, I do think it's helpful for churches to uh, to teach on individual gospels, hence my story, gospels as stories that really look at the discrete uh, gospels four gospels as discrete stories. I think there's great value in that. And I think we've underplayed that importance, but I'm not going to work that out at Christmas time. My 
one-year-old grandson has his first nativity, little tykes. You grab things from the different windows and you think I'm going to try to correct that? No, we are going to tell the story over and over again. And he gets to play whichever, with, if he wants to put a wise man and a shepherd together or a magi and a shepherd, he will be free to do so. So harmonizing in nativity sets is fine, just not in papers for Dr. Brown's classes. Exactly. My, <laughs> one of my favorite stories in teaching with Kyle on the teach that when we did the two horizons and we were teaching the class ahead of time and the student said, but Jesus does this. And I said, not in Matthew. He doesn't. <laughs> I was like, without even thinking, we all just stop and go, okay, let's talk methodology a little bit here because we're doing a theological commentary, but you know, I can't let go of that one. I'm sorry. Just bring in some stray shepherd from Luke into the reading of Matthew. Mm, not that. Oh, that's great. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation, Dr. Brown. Thank you so much for joining us and, and help, helping to illuminate the distinctive things that is going on in Matthew's genealogy and how that plays out into the rest of Matthew's gospel. So thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Yes, thanks for joining us. It's been wonderful to talk about uh, the Old Testament and Matthew and learn more about Christmas and not let the Magi get canceled. So thank you for that. If you'd like more engagement of theology, culture, and discipleship from the two cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.